Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics. And so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with extreme caution. There was one report on a press conference in which D.A. John Charles Stock announced he was placing Conklin in charge of a special investigation unit and charging him with cleaning up a myriad of vice problems that threatened the social fabric of Los Angeles County. I've always gone to John Conklin with the toughest jobs, the D.A. said, and I go to him again. The people of Los Angeles community want their community cleaned up, and by God, they will have it. To those who know we're coming for you, my advice is, get out. San Francisco will have you. San Diego will have you. But the City of Angels won't have you. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast. I'm Philip Parker, a retired police detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod and our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are set up just for our fans. Also, join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content, where you will find a more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Conley. Now all that's out the way, it's time to get back to work and probe into chapters 13 through 16 of The Last Coyote. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, we explored how to realize one's destiny is a person's only obligation. Shape chapters 9 through 12 of The Last Coyote. And today we will be taking a deep dive into chapters 13 through 16. As always, there's the prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens. So please proceed with extreme caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line Podcast, Harry Bosch. It's time to open up the murder book and turn the page to the chronological record so we can do an investigative summary on the information gathered thus far in this chapter. As he's apt to do, Bosch is sitting in his dining room table, reviewing the newspaper clips provided to him by Keisha Russell. Bosch thinks about his last therapy session with Dr. Noho. Dr. Noho flatly counseled Bosch to stop his investigation into the death of his mother until he was better emotionally prepared to face what he might find. 
Dr. Noho told Bosch that he's headed down a path that could jeopardize the very foundation of him being a homicide investigator. While reviewing two stacks of newspaper clips, one on Alan Conklin and the other one on Mattel, Bosch noticed that Conklin was a fast riser in the DA's office, tasked with a number of high-profile investigations. Mattel, on the other hand, appeared to prefer to work in the shadows. Bosch also notes that Conklin was from Hancock Park, the same location that Catherine Richter had mentioned to Bosch was Marjorie Lowe's last known destination. Bosch later called a longtime DA friend, Roger Golf. Golf confirmed that Conklin was not dead, but was retired and living in a full care retirement home. Golf also expressed belief in a rumor that Mattel had planted pornography in a co-worker's desk so he could become Conklin's right-hand man. The next morning, Bosch calls LAPD's personnel office to check whether the initial investigators, Detective Noho and or McKittrick, were still police officers. After dealing with the city's bureaucracy, Bosch was able to establish that Noho had since died, but McKittrick was residing in Florida. Later that afternoon, Bosch responds to LAPD's Scientific Investigations Division and requests a lab technician to run the fingerprints acquired during the investigation of Marjorie Lowe through the new APHIS computer system looking for any possible matching prints. As Bosch was getting into the elevator en route to the Evidence Storage Division, he noticed Chief Irving. A conversation ensued between Bosch and Chief Irving. Irving expressed that he was handling the situation between Bosch and Lieutenant Pounds differently. Chief Irving stated that it was his hope to get Bosch back to work on the Hollywood homicide table. Chief Irving requested that Harry think about writing a letter of apologies to Lieutenant Pounds, hoping that this letter and a recommendation from Dr. Noho would be more than suffice to justify Harry's return. Harry told the chief that he would think about writing a letter. Afterwards, Bosch responds to ESD and retrieves the box that contained the evidence collected during the investigation of his mother. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. For the defining theme for chapters 13 through 16 of The Last Coyote is John 316. Hello, and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. Today, we start this podcast off with Harry you know, doing his tried and true investigative methods. Now, as a detective, and as any, actually any good law enforcement officer, but more specifically a detective, you develop a pattern of how you investigate things. And we see Harry has spread out all the newspaper clips that he uh, got from Keisha Russell. And he's going over those newspaper clips. And, and, he's, and, and we'll find out a little later in this, uh, these chapters, he rereads them over and over again. And see, what I did was, when I had something to read, I had an idea in my head. And so, say I had an idea in my head that John Doe 
was a runner from um, the marathon. Well, I will reread my investigation with that in mind. John Doe, a runner. And so I would reread the documentation I had over and over again with that mindset. But then when I find out, well, no, John Doe wasn't a runner. He was a swimmer. So then I would reread it again with that in mind that he's a swimmer. Now, why you do that, why it's important, because you overlook different things, but this helps you focus on the information you got and helps you focus to get to pull out little nuggets. You know, and then we also see Harry taking solace of some of the stuff that Dr. Anoho had, you know, some of the things that he's starting to question why he became a a police officer. And remember, again, this is one of the things that, and I keep pointing out to you guys why I like Michael Conley, because as a criminal investigator, one of the things I loved was weaving together the story. And back in the Concrete Blonde, when Bosch was on the stand, Honey Chandler actually was the one so far in the three books that we've gotten to so far, um, was the one who kind of started Harry thinking about why he became a police officer. Okay, so from the, that book, The Concrete Blonde, so the man who strangled your mother not only took the one closest to you, he destroyed much of your life at that point. Uh, I say so. Did the crime have to do something with you becoming a police officer? Bosch felt he no longer could look at the jury. He knew his face had turned red, and he felt he was dying under a magnifying glass. Uh, I don't know. I never really analyzed myself to that extent. I mean, that's one of the things that, again, I just finished talking about it. Now you start looking at different information through a different prism. And now we have the prism Honey Chandler put back in the the reader's mind of some of the uh, factors that made Harry become a police officer. Now, up until that point, Harry's actually never thought about that. And so it made me, as a reader of Michael Connolly's book, I went back and read that over and over again, like, oh, wow. Again, he, he does things so subtle. And if you don't look, like a good criminal, <laughs> you know, let's look, Michael Conley is a good criminal, like a good criminal, you know, you don't see it coming. And as I told you before, uh, and that's one of the things that I always enjoyed about reading Michael Conley's books, because, you know, I'm on the lookout for the surprise and he still gets me. And what's great about the Concrete Blonde, you know, the Concrete Blonde started the foundation of Harry examining why he is what he is. And Michael's telling a story within a story, which, again, is just phenomenal. And so back then, Harry's questioning the truth about himself. So now Bosch is starting to listen to these people about what is his motivator. And so we see Michael Connolly um, having Harry to reevaluate why he wanted to be a police officer. And he even says it here, you know, from the book, Bosch considered that she, she is talking about Dr. Noho, what she said was true. He knew all his life that it was there. What had happened to his mother had helped define everything he did after. It was always there in the dark recesses of his mind. A promise to find out. A promise to avenge. I mean, wow. Michael Conley has such an eloquent way 
to get us, the readers, to start seeing some of the complexities of Harry Bosch. And again, I think that's what makes him uh, a lovable and a believable character because he's flawed. God knows he's flawed, just like all investigators, just like all of us, he's flawed. But his flaws do, do not outweigh the righteousness and the mission that he's on. And, you know, again, listeners, just, a, you know, pulling back the veil, you know, we talk about um, Harry then follows up with a phone call with district attorney, his old friend, district attorney, um, uh, golf. And I spoke about this before in prior podcasts. I had two such attorneys who I work with. They could call me in the middle of the night and I'll be there for them. And or they could say, Phil, I need you to do this for me. And I did it because just like golf was, they weren't rising stars. And believe me, I've seen them argue cases and do things in court that 99% of the other attorneys who only um, were practicing my particular brand of law so they can put a check mark and they can move on up, up, the, up the ladder and become whatever they wanted to do you know, further down the road, they wouldn't do because they were scared and or intimidated by the repercussions. Now, again, when I said repercussions, it wasn't that um, what I was speaking about those two attorneys was doing was illegal, but it wasn't political. Um, I've seen one attorney say to a judge, you know, he in middle of court, he says, your honor, if this was a black guy selling, if I told you the second highest seizure of drugs in the city, the question of his bond and bail would not be in dispute. But since this is a white guy, you're going to try to put him out on personal recognizance? And we all looked at, I mean, the courtroom exploded with silence. <laughs> like, oh, snap, he didn't say that in court. And you're like, whoa. You know, from that point on, we called his other attorney, boom, boom. But those are, those are the type of attorneys that Roger Golf represents here and the two other attorneys I was talking about. And again, as, as a cop, as a, um, we see those. And you know what? You play them. You know, because you, you got to work with them. You can't always depend on the Roger Golfs of the DA's office. You got to work with whatever uh, attorney is up in the barrel. But knowing the type of attorney you have as a criminal investigator, you need to learn soon to be savvy enough to use those limitations in your benefit. We then see Conklin being assigned to a special narcotic task force to rid the city of the problems. And Conklin's supervisor, when he was announcing it, pretty much said, you know, get out. We won't have you. Talking about San Francisco might have you, San Diego might have you, but the city of angels won't have you. And that's one of the problems of the broken window syndrome. And I'm going to talk about it later on in depth with the, um, my interviewee. But the whole idea of not fixing the problem, just moving it on to the next block, to the next street, to the next county, where it's not my problem, just exasperated the situation. 
And again, we then also see that Michael Conley is not afraid to touch certain social taboos. What I mean by that is, you know, we get two quotes from Harry reading the clips concerning the broken window syndrome. He said, you know, that he was fully aware that we were just getting the bottom feeders and the bottom feeders were getting the hook while the vice lords weren't being touched. Exactly. And that's the problem. You know, again, let's get the bottom guys. Let's not really make an impact. I mean, again, now I'm going to tell you, you have to get the bottom guys. Listeners, please trust me. I'm not saying let the bottom guys go. What I'm saying is that it needs to be a comprehensive plan. I used to call it feed the beast. Now, again, you have to know the politics behind your investigation. And again, since we're talking about vice here, I'm, I think I'm somewhat a vice expert. And what you did was you had to feed the beast. The beast was management. Management wanted numbers just for numbers sake. And I knew that. And you weren't going to change that because management has a different beast to slay than what I do. But a good vice investigator would be able to feed the beast, but also feed your investigation. So case in point, what I mean by that, I would do this. If the commander would say, you know, back when I was a vice officer in a small division, we were responsible for certain sectors of the city. And so I'm just saying my, my sector of the city, there became a big vice problem. And the commander would call a meeting with the vice people. And in this meeting, they would say, okay, who's responsible for this area? I said, well, I am, sir. Well, I need, to, I need to start locking up every swinging dick there because the citizens are on my ass and I need to lock everybody up. I'm like, okay, no problem, sir. Get, get it done, Phil. I'm like, okay. So afterwards, at least my lieutenant and my sergeant would sit down and say, okay, how the fuck are you going to do this? Or they would start coming out, well, let's just go and do some sweeps and just you know, buy bus operations and just get the low-level people. And I became savvy enough to say, well, sir, instead of just doing buy bus, I want to target the buy bus. And when I, after I do the buy bus, I want to try to develop sources. And then developing those sources would then dictate where we buy bus. Now, I'm going to get you the numbers because I know I see the commander was all over everyone's ass. But on the back end, this is what I want to do. So give me a little bit more flexibility. And I'm going to give you your numbers, I, uh, a.k.a. feed the beast. But I'm also going to work smarter. And I'm going to take that overall by bus operation and I'm going to weave it into a, a more comprehensive investigation to get at what Harry said, the vice lords. You have to be courageous enough and then follow up. I mean, because if you didn't follow up, then your command staff would be like, fuck that, do what I told you. But he, again, I was able to and lucky enough to have supervisors and I was responsible enough to say, I'll take care of the problem. Just let, I see the problem. I heard what the commander wanted. Let me do my job. You trained me. I'm a, a well-oiled machine. Let me get out there and do my job. And then we see Conklin, you know, incorporating the broken window syndrome in his uh, campaign stump speech. And again, we're going to talk about that later. Again, I'm, keep, I'm, I'm teasing you guys. Um, I think you're going to enjoy the interviewee concerning the broken window syndrome, so we're going to move on. 
And just like I said at the beginning of this podcast, by rereading the news clips, Fox was able to confirm some information that Catherine Register had given him concerning Hancock Park. Again, that was the last known destination of his mother, Marjorie Lowe. And again, as it's nothing really big, but when it comes to authenticating your source of information, it's a check mark concerning information. Again, it goes towards the validity of your witness. This revelation about Hancock Park and Conklin talking about vice problems and the myriad of ills it brings to the city, we see that he's a hypocrite. So if we believe what Catherine said, that the last destination of Marjorie Lowe was to go to Hancock Park, and then we have Conklin calling the two investigators, asking about Marjorie Lowe, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see those two were connected. So Boss thinks aloud, you know, what a hypocrite. And, you know, I just say, but most politicians are hypocrites. I mean, I remember one time I had a roadblock. And again, it was something similar to the broken window syndrome. But we had, we had to assist with roadblocks in a particular neighborhood. Well, in the roadblock, this one politician rolls through. And the asshole, you know, we just do this, you know, the standard driver license registration, or, you know, you know, you gave that little preamble. Hello, blah, 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 blah. I'm pulling you over. We have a, a roadblock, and um, that's the reason you're being stopped, and I need to see your driver license registration, blah, 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 blah. So this one politician pulls up in the roadblock, and he's known because of the manner of his attire. He's very flamboyant, and he's readily recognizable. So he pulls up, and, you know, Sir, I need to see your driver's license and registration, please. Officer, I, I don't have a driver's license or my registration with me. Like, okay, well, um, give me the correct spelling of your name and everything. And just because you don't have it on you, if you have a vital license, um, we could possibly give you a warning because, you know, you're required to have your driver's license and registration on you at all times. So, you know, I go back and I run it. You know, well, the first thing, happen was when you go over the air because I'm stupid <laughs> this is as I told you I got in trouble a lot when I was younger so instead of instinctively doing what I what, you know the politically savvy thing to do was to go to my the supervisor on the scene there you know it was a lieutenant to say hey I got this guy you know just call him Council, Councilman Malcolm Councilman Malcolm's over there. Like, oh, okay, yeah. And he doesn't have his driver's license with him. You know, what do you want to do? I mean, that would have been the most prudent and politically savvy thing to do. But my dumbass self was, <laughs> I, you know, stepped back and go over the air and said, a dispatcher, uh, dispatcher, go ahead. Um, could you run a Malcolm Jones for a valid DL? And registration on vehicle one, two, three, A, B, C. And so the name, again, I told you it was a really flamboyant and very recognizable city council person. And the name, everyone kind of turned and looked at me. And then my lieutenant, the lieutenant on the scene who was supervising the particular traffic stop walks over to me and says, what you got going on, Phil? I said, oh, no, the, the council member, you know, rode through the, the, the roadblock and 
He says he doesn't have a driver's license and registration on him. And he goes, uh-huh. What are you planning on doing? I'm like, well, you know, what I would do with pretty much anybody, you know, I'm not out here to harass somebody. So if his driver's license is, uh, and registration come back valid, I issue a warning and just tell him to keep it with him at all times. I mean, no, no brainer. He goes, all right, all right, all right. So, you know, a couple of seconds later, dispatcher says, um, you know, she calls back, um, Phil? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she pauses too. <laughs> yeah. Um, our computer terminals are, are acting funny right now, and I can't find a valid driver's license. Oh, okay. But then I started walking over to the car. And as I walked over to the car, the lieutenant was monitoring. He walks over with me. I said, and I, I was using, again, the fictional name, uh, Mr. Mr. Jones. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it seems like our computers are, are running slow today uh, and or I can't verify you have a driver's license. Are you sure you have a valid driver's license? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, mm. <laughs> no, protocol was what I was just about to do. <laughs> so you need to step out the car because you're about to get my handcuffs. And I saw the lieutenant look at me like, he put his hand on my shoulder. Um, uh, do me a favor. Uh, I got this. You go down to the next car. You handle the next car. And I looked at him. I'm like, it, I, you know, again, my, my dumb ass self, I was not registering what I was about to do. <laughs> so, well, okay, you got it, Lou. You know, he's a lieutenant. I'm a regular, you know, frontline schlep. So I go down to the um, next car. And so, <laughs> you know, I see him talking and writing stuff in the, in his notebook, and he's writing, and then he goes over the air, tells the dispatcher, you know, he's on the scene, he's monitoring, and all communications concerning this, you know, go through him. And so the, the council member was asked to pull over and uh, wait for a while, and then he was, he was let go. <laughs> so after the roadblock, I go to the lieutenant and said, what did you do? So he looked over at me and said, Phil, what were you about to do? I said, well, I'm going to lock him up. <laughs> he said, exactly. Don't worry about what I did. I'm the lieutenant. Any repercussions concerning this event, good or bad, will come on me. And I like, got it. And, you know, just kept on going. Now, again, I drew that story out. And that happened all the time. And these politicians are nothing but hypocrites. And again, I'm teasing you guys to stay with this particular podcast because my interviewee, we really get into the whole broken window syndrome and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, did you guys pick up? See, I don't believe Michael Conley puts things in the books just to be putting them there. I think there was a reason behind when he put different items in the book. And one of the things that, if you don't really look into it, it captured me at least. As when Bosch is talking to Golf, and Golf, you know, is talking about people who go in prison all of a sudden get religion. And, you know, he makes a reference to John 316. And I don't think it was a coincidence because, again, if you read John 316, 
from the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Again, I'm not a Bible beater type of guy, but it did put me in the mindset of this whole character of Harry Bosch. And one of the things that I would love to ask Michael Conley is why did he put John 3.16 at this portion of the Harry Bosch arc and what did it mean to him? And, you know, we also see Bosch artfully asking Golf about Conklin and Mattel and if Mattel was the type of guy that would set up a rival to accomplish a political goal. And Golf said, yeah, I, I think he would, you know. And he talks about a situation where pornography was found on a fellow rival of his. And again, so we started to get a picture of these particular characters. You know, we got Conklin, Mattel, the guy who likes to work behind Conklin, you know, the guy, the kingmaker, you know, which is probably a better moniker for the guy. Did you guys pick up how Michael Connolly artfully addressed golf's sexual orientation? Because he kept saying, you know, golf's roommate, Andrew, and Harry said he knew um, that Andrew was golf's quote unquote roommate. And then, you know, later on, when Bosch asked Golf to go out to beer, he says, no, me and Andrew are going to have dinner tonight. Again, it's just one of those signs that Michael Conley is not afraid to go there. And again, in this particular podcast, for this particular episode, that's one of the things that, again, that's drawing me to Michael Conley. He's not afraid. Again, we're talking, let's look at this through the prisms of 1995. I think I talked about it in prior podcasts. You know, at the time, AIDS and homosexuality back in the 1995s had kind of woven together. And here, you know, I think it would be easy for Michael Conley to walk away from something like that and not talk about something like that. But he brings it up here. Again, very cleverly. Wasn't very overtly. But again, if you're looking at the book for 1995, I think, very courageously. And then the next day, we have Harry calling Miss Sharp. You know, he got into uh, Miss Sharp of the DMV. And this is the same Miss Sharp who, last podcast we talked about, Harry has been impersonating Lieutenant Pounds. <laughs> and, you know, he requests the uh, home addresses of Conklin, Mattel, Eno, and McKittrick, the, the Eno McKittrick, who is the two uh, detectives who were investigating his mother's murder. Again, from the book. Is this Miss Sharp? That's who you asked for, isn't it? Indeed, I did. Then it's Miss Sharp. What can I do you for? Well, I want to mend our fences, so to speak. I have a few more names I need driver's license addresses for. And I thought that directly working with you would expedite the matter and perhaps repair our working relationship. <laughs> and she says, honey, we don't have a working relationship. Hold on, please. <laughs> you know, you know, Michael Conley, again, I love the levity, the levity that Michael Conley hits you with at different times. And, you know, again, as a guy who dreaded going down to the beast, going down to the city hall to pull up any information, 
again, any civil servant can tell you they dreaded dealing with their peer civil servants because at times civil service can be so exasperating when it comes to getting them to do any work. And then we see Harry only able to obtain addresses for Mattel and Conklin. And again, as a detective, and Harry did here, you don't let one way stop you from getting information. So Harry utilizes some old detective tools to accomplish his task by calling an old detective, a Leroy Rubin from RHD. And before Harry could try to run a scheme on Rubin, you know, just doing the introduction, he goes, Harry Bosch, you know, pretty much, hey, uh, I hear that you on the beach, you know, or something to that effect. Again, let Harry know that word spreads fast when it comes to the department. And again, if you didn't have any idea of what happens in law enforcement, Michael Conley started that or planted that seed of how fast information flies, especially gossip in the police department. He talked about it back in the Black Echo from the book, Black Echo. So before you tell me why you're here, Harry, why don't you tell me what happened in 98 Pounds' office today? Bosch smiled. Word traveled faster through a police department than it did on the streets, which is true. (laughs) You know, know, cops are the biggest gossipers. Let me just say it. We are the biggest gossipers in the world. We gossip about everything. And again, Michael Connelly established it back in the Black Echo. So you are really getting a true sense of being an investigator if you started reading the Michael Connolly books with concerning Harry Bosch. And again, that's what draws me to this, this author and this character. I'm not artistic as Michael Connolly, and, but he's telling my story. He's telling what it means to be a criminal investigator. And he does it in such an eloquent way, then in a, such a believable way, that if you don't know anything about being a police officer, Read his books. Now, we're right now in, um, and I'm going to tell you, it happens throughout. But so far, we're in the fourth book. And you are getting a good picture of what what it is to be a criminal investigator. And, you know, one of the the nuggets that uh, Ruben was able to give Bosch was that McKittrick had since retired. He heard he had moved to Florida. And um, Ruben said he didn't know um, Eno. And, you know, to again, to follow up on what I was saying about you just don't stop at one particular way to get some information. You just, you don't just throw your hands up. So we see Harry call DMV to try to get home addresses for four targets. And then he was only able, out of those four, only able to get two. So then he called an RHD homicide investigator who's been there forever. And he was able to narrow down that out of the two, one of the guys that he was looking for possibly move to Florida upon retiring. And then now we have Harry going to the financial department and attempt to get some more home addresses for um, McKittrick and Eno. That is what we call gumshoe investigations. You don't just stop. You go, you attack a problem from different angles. And we see Michael Conley giving you, the reader, an idea of the different angles in which to attack the problem. And, you know, one thing that Bosch did here is this is an old investigator's trick. You act as though you belong there. And when you act like you belong there, 
pretty much everyone else like, well, I'm not sure who this guy is, but he's acting like he belongs here, so he must belong here. And we see doing that, Harry is pushy enough, but not so pushy, where he's able to then get information about Eno and McKittrick. And he was able to verify that um, McKittrick had a P.O. box in Florida. Again, that's the check off that information that Ruben had gave him was true. And that Eno has self has since had died. And you know, a quick example of what it means to act like you belong there. So when you got assigned to Vice, the first thing you had to do is go to a basic investigator, Vice investigators class. And, and it was a basic class, drug identification, um, basic investigative techniques, blah, 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 blah. And so the facilitator, it was a two-week class. Yeah. And so the facilitator was talking about the advanced classes. And, you know, usually the advanced classes are harder to get into. So I think doing a break or something like that, I'm not sure how I found out, but I found out that the next week, the advanced classes was happening at a different location. And I went to the training coordinator and said, hey, look, I'd like to get into that advanced class next week. And she's, you know, <laughs> pretty much did with the DMV lady said, honey, you, uh, you're not getting into that class. People have been, the wait list for that class is forever. So you just got device, cool your heels, honey. <laughs> I remember her, she always called me honey. So um, I did find out, like I said, when and where the class was being held. Now, one of the things that happened when I was in the basic class, now anyone who's been in any government class, again, back then, now again, we're talking about before computers. We're talking about the 90s. If you were in a class, this would tell, me, tell me this didn't happen when you were in a class. The facilitator would then say, we'll read off the names and you raise your hand or say you're here, right? And then the people who say, the facilitator would say, is there anyone here who I did not name? And then a couple of people raised their hand and say, where, where are you from? Oh, I'm from District 10 or I'm from Oklahoma, whatever. You were, oh, we don't have you on the list. Well, I'm here. They told me to be here. All right, well, look, put your name on the list, and we'll worry about that later. How many times did that happen? I'm pretty sure my podcast listeners who have that experience, it happens all the time, right? Well, this was happening in my first class, the first basic investigators class. So I had an epiphany. So again, I found out when and where the advanced class was, and I showed up. <laughs> I just showed up. And Lo and behold, the facilitator said, hey, is there anyone here in which I didn't talk about or I didn't call out? And me and like two other guys raised their hands and said, you didn't call us out. It happened. It worked. But put your name on the bottom of the list and we'll worry about it later. So then I would then, so I got into class. And I remember the lady before told me, honey, you ain't never getting a class like that. You know, the wait list is forever. <laughs> so I called up and said, hey, look, I'm in the class. Well, how'd you get in the class? Well, they had my name on the list. Well, you shouldn't be in the class. I'm like, well, they had my name on the list. So they gave me administrative leave so to be in that investigator's class. Well, I can tell you, podcast listeners, it got good. I got so many classes by just showing up and raising my hand and saying, yeah, you didn't call my name. <laughs> so that's an example of, again, that's a long example of acting like you belong because most people will not challenge you if you act like you belong and doing that you can usually as a criminal investigator get what you want 
And that brings us to this episode's question of the day. And the question of the day is as follows. As Bosch is reviewing background articles concerning Arnold Conklin, he comes across an article where Conklin is praising the broken window theory. The theory suggests that policing methods that target minor crimes such as vandalism, drinking in public, and fare evasions help create the atmosphere of order and lawlessness, thereby preventing more serious crimes. Question. Do you agree with this theory? Yes, it discourages further crimes and disorder. Or no, it just hurts the little guy. And as of the airing of this podcast, 69% of you say yes, it discourages further crimes and disorder. While 31% of you say no, it just hurts the little guy. Well, I'm actually going to have to go with the 31% of you guys. And I would like to thank one of the Facebook friends of the podcast who kind of eloquently put it. Enforcement against minor infractions laws merely preserves the veneer of order and placates the citizenry into complacency. And without going into much of the interview coming up in the podcast, the interviewee actually gives a good example of how this just gives a false sense of security. And if it's not done correctly, I mean, again, there is a methodology behind it, but it costs a lot of money to actually implement this broken window theory. And well, I call it broken window syndrome, but it's pretty much the same thing. But please stand by and listen to the interview. And we really tackle this theory and how it has affected the relationship between the police department and the citizens. So, again, thank you guys for participating in the poll. And let's get back to hitting the streets. And as we return from the question of the day, we then see Bosch walk into the scientific division. And just like he did in the city's finance office, he walked in as though he belong there. <laughs> and again, I gave you uh, an extensive view of acting as though you belong there. But as you see, Bosch still does that to accomplish his mission. And again, I told you I've done it. And as we see here with Bosch, it works. And again, Michael Connolly lets you see another investigative technique is trying to get some type of connection or some type of familiarity with the lab tech who's very standoffish, who doesn't seem to have a, a very personable personality. I mean, as Bosch is talking to him, the individual is staring straight at the monitor, not trying to make eye contact with Bosch. But he, Bosch needs something from this guy. So you have to try and make him comfortable to get him on your side. And we see why Bosch is trying to make a connection with the guy. He kind of brings back, hey, I talked to Edgar and... I know they ran some prints and got a hit back. And again, he's trying all these different techniques and it's not working. But as I was saying earlier in the podcast, cops are big, just a big gossip. We, we just gossip and talk about everything. And this lab tech calls Bosch out. You know, he says, look, I'm not sure what you're up to, but the word is out about you. Matter of fact, you shouldn't even be back here. So won't you just fill out the form? And, you know, like I said, that just reinforces what I was saying. Here it is, Bosch is on uh, leave. Now, 
this is a little bit unique situation. I mean, not too many times uh, the gossip is that an officer threw his uh, su- superior officer through a window, but you kind of get the gist of it. I mean, it's we are a bunch of gossipers. I mean, I, you would be amazed again. I, I could be off duty and I get a call. Hey, Phil, did you hear what Johnny John did? I'm like, no, nah, what do you do? Like, oh my God, I can't, I can't believe that happened. So again, we gossip a lot. And in Bosch's last ditch effort to get this lab tech to run the prints through the APHIS computer system, he tells him the story about how he got the prints. And after he finished telling the story how he got the prints, Bosch drops the yellow print card on the keyboard from the book. Look, man, that's a bad story, but I can't do this. I'm sorry. Bosch stared at him for a moment and then slowly stood. Don't forget the card, Hurst said. He picked up the card and held it to Bosch. I'm leaving it here. You're going to do the right thing, Hirsch. I can tell. No, I don't. I can't do I'm leaving it here. The power of his voice shocked even Bosch, and it seemed to have scared Hirsch. The print tech replaced the card on the keyboard. And we see this Bosch yelling, I'm going to leave it here kind of gets to what Dr. Arnojo was warning Bosch about because some of that anger and pain is leaking out here. And as Bosch is leaving, you know, he says to himself, he's going to give uh, the lab tech for a week or two before he calls back and try to see any results. And a line that any good investigator lives by from the book, it was a loose end. And any thorough investigation took care of loose ends. That, if, if any cop, you know, if you, you know, we all have little sayings. You know, I think Harry says, get off your ass and knock on some doors. And, and everyone has some. Michael Connolly, if you're listening, this, is a, this was a, a, a saying, a quote you could put over Edgar's desk. Say, hey, any thorough investigations take care of loose ends. Because you know what? The loose ends as a criminal investigator will bite you in the ass. I can't tell you. I, it happened to me. I've done it. It happened to me. And you learn the hard way. You know, the worst thing happens if you get on the stand and a good criminal investigator noticed that you didn't follow up on something. So, again, something minor. Again, you want to cross your, cross your uh, T's and dot your I's. But any loose thread of your investigation, running a tag, you know, finishing up an interview, running some prints that might never come back because the mere fact that you didn't do that then can create the specter of doubt. And again, any defense attorney would take that doubt and drive a back truck through it. Again, like I said, you didn't run the prints, right? Okay. Well, well, detective, um, I see here on the uh, police report, you had five prints. Gathered, yes, ma'am. But but you only ran four of them. Well, that's true. Why didn't you run the fifth? Oh, well, it was kind of smudged, and it was based on our experience that it wasn't going to come back to anything, or whatever excuse you make up. Well, isn't it true that that could be the killer or the the true uh, perpetrator of the crime? You see, boom, there it is. And all day long, the defense attorney will drive that point home because then that builds on sloppy police work, cutting corners. And how can you trust the process 
and convict my client when the police, that's all they had to do is run these other prints. Again, and it's not far-fetched. And, you know, I like what happens next because, you know, Bosch gets on the elevator and he's actually going to go downstairs to the evidence um, vault. And as Bosch is getting on the elevator, him and Chief Irving getting uh, connect with each other. And Irving asked Bosch, hey, what are you doing down here? And Bosch thinks fast on his feet and gives a good excuse for being down at Parker Center. And then, you know, Irving notices the, uh, the Bosch hands, and then, again, he comes up with some bullshit story. Again, Irving's not pounds. Irving is not Lieutenant, hands, Lieutenant, Lieutenant um, Hans off. Irving is a seasoned administrator, and he's been an ID, and he, you don't make your way up the ranks without having some good investigative skills yourself. And he knows that Bosch is telling some bullshit story, at least about this hand. And then Irving says something that's totally shocking to me. And Irving tells Bosch that it is, it is his intention to get Bosch back on the Hollywood table. I, I, I was almost floored. But again, I think one of the things that, uh, again, it, it came up in this particular portion of the book, that Bosch and Irving's contempt for each other had eroded into a truce, which is now more like a line of worry mutual respect. You know, you know, again, we started out with Black Echo, those guys just being at each other. And then it still was going that way with the Black Ice, where Irving ordered him back to um, the department so he can interview him, and Bosch ignored his order, but then he brought the case home. And then we have in a concrete blonde where Irving and Bosch's relationship, Irving comes to find out that they have this very personal relationship because remember Irving found Bosch's mother uh, when she was dead behind the dumpster. We see this, as Harry Bosch said here, this weary mutual respect with each other. Where I don't really trust you, but I don't think you are enemy. And Dr. Noho said it, that the department values what Harry does because it was easy. I mean, technically Harry should be at the bare minimum up on the, at the boards of rights, you know, about to lose his job. But the department, i.e. chief Irving believes in his skill set, And now Irving can possibly see based on what happened in the last book, why Bosch does the things he does. And let me try to salvage this guy, which is, totally blows me away with Chief Irving. And Irving further asks Bosch to write a letter of apology to Pounds. And he pretty much tells Bosch this would go a long way to smoothing out his return. Now, a younger Phil would be like, fuck you, I'm not writing a letter of apology. But a more seasoned Phil, Harris will have to make a decision really quickly. The Chief is asking him for a favor. And a favor is going to save his fucking job. Just write a letter of apology to Pounds. And is that writing a letter worth you not doing what you want to do, your life mission? I mean, Harry's going to have to make a decision really fast. And, you know, to further drive the point home that Irving's intent is to have Bosch back on the Hollywood table is when Bosch says, well, 
you might want me back, but Pounds has already replaced me. And Irving says, well, that's a shock to me. He'll look into it. And just to finish up this whole interaction between Bosch and uh, Chief Irving, Irving says, you know, very well. But you know, Harry, pride gets in the way of a lot of right decisions. Don't let that happen to you. And then we see Harry making his way down to the basement to ESD, the Evidence Storage Division. And Michael Connolly pretty much says, essentially, that made ESD the city's temple of failure. What was behind the steel doors? Bosch opened was the physical evidence from thousands of unsolved crimes. Crimes that had never resulted in a prosecution. It even seemed to smell failure. Because it was in the basement of the building, there was a damp odor here that Bosch always believed was the rank stink of neglect and decay and of hopelessness. And as we see here, as I've been pointing out throughout this podcast today, that information in the department or, or gossip in the department runs wild. And while Harry is waiting for the evidence concerning his mother, Marjorie Lowe, that's why he went down to ESD, he runs across another detective there trying to pick up some evidence. And he kind of congratulates Harry on what Harry did to 98 pounds. Now, all these people are talking about what he did to 98 pounds or Lieutenant Pounds. And as you see here, there's no love loss between this detective and Lieutenant Pounds from the book. The fuck? He was my CO. So anyway, I heard through the network, you know, what you did to his ass. Put his face through a fucking window. That's great, man. Fucking great. More power to you. I laughed my ass off when I heard that. Well, I'm glad I entertained you. <laughs> you know, again, uh, no more needs to be said. And as we finish up hitting the streets, we see the clerk found the box of evidence containing the evidence of Marjorie Lowe's uh, murder. And Bosch takes the box out. And as he says here in the book, he carries it with two hands as though it contains something precious. As I alluded to earlier in the podcast, I brought in a lifelong friend of mine, Officer Theodore, a.k.a. Teddy Anderson, to give his perspective on the broken window syndrome slash theory. Ted and I go back a long ways, and I hope you enjoy his insight. I'm interviewing Theodore Anderson. So, <clears throat> basically, you and I known each other for how long now? We've known each other since Shit, we were... Man, almost 40 years. Wow, 40 years. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what's so unique about you and I, let's back up to our early childhood. My father is a police officer. Your father was a police, was a police officer. Yes. And your father, 
How much time did he put on? Like, how much time did he do before he retired? Thirty years. He did thirty years. He also. did thirty years exactly. He did yes. thirty years. Mm-hmm. And how much would you say your father, being a police officer, influenced you becoming a cop? Oh, tremendously. I mean, you know, obviously as a kid, you see your father in his uniform and, um, you know, his day to day going out, um, the whole hat, the, the eight point hat that he wears, right, the, right. the shiny. And so, you know, my father was, was very pristine about his uniform. Definitely. So the whole, uh, patent leather shine on the shoes and, you know, the brass being shined mm. and, um, um, the belt buckle. You know, they had the, he had the square brass right. belt buckle. And so, you know, back in the day, the brothers either had like the high gloss um, Sam Browns or they had the patent leather Sam Browns. And, and I think at one time he was in the honor guard. So I remember him, and, you know, and, and in the early days, the, uh, the police used to wear like what we call today class A's. That actually was their everyday uniform. Right. No, no let's back up a little bit because one thing about the podcast, a lot of people don't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I always break it down like a fraction. Sure. When you say class A's, give, give an example of what you mean by class A uniform. So like a suit jacket. Um, okay. So the, the, um, the impression of them actually being in a suit itself. So okay. a shirt and tie right. with, a, with a, a suit jacket. Right. Um, uh, so opposed to a, so a class A, I'm assuming it's the top line for pristine and appearance. What's a class B uniform then? If you break it down, the class B, the class B would be what's under the suit jacket itself. So um, it would be a regular dress shirt. Okay. With uh, well, again, in my early days of being a policeman, the the class B would be the dress shirt with a tie. Right. Now we've gone to these new sports style um, um, weightlifting MMA style uniforms where you know the whole class of wearing a tie and all that all that's gone out the window so it's it's, it's fashionable now not to have a tie right you know so that's sort of where we are today but um, the class B was again it was sort of like business semi business attire got it where you're wearing sort of like a dress shirt with a tie okay and you know of course you know of course you had your your action slacks your right. polyester <laughs> right. polyester blues so now you said that you seen your father wearing those type of clothing mm-hmm. you know and his appearance was uh, is immaculate and again it's so funny because uh, both of our fathers that's that is their style they mm-hmm. went to work their generation, mm-hmm. it was all nothing about, it was always professionalism, mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. professional. They always, every day, they looked like they, 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 were, they were the pentacle of what a police officer should they, look they, like. They represented the job well. Exactly. Yeah, they, exactly. Yeah, they were definitely the poster cards um, of the uniform. So I became a police officer first, mm-hmm. um, and then I came on in 89, you came on in... I came on August of 90. In 1990. 1990. And then one of our other close friends came on after you. Yeah, he came on like maybe five or six months after I did. And we both, um, uh, since junior high school, Mm -hmm. and then we both went to the police department together. Um, well, right after each other. Mm-hmm. And then what's interesting is when you came out the academy, you became under my, you came under my father's tutelage. You yes. know, you went to the district in which he was the, uh, the, yeah, but I actually heard that your father had some insight on that one, that he actually, <laughs> he actually coaxed his captain to, to pull me to his district and to make sure I was under his, uh, supervision. So, 
I mean, you know, but that was a good thing. That was a good yeah. thing because I mean, you know, um, I definitely had tremendous leadership um, in that that era. Well, you know, it's interesting because I know he wouldn't. And I'm, I guess the question to ask him, I knew he would not do that for me, me and Alan. He would not pull us under his tutelage, as you said. But why district. do you say that? Though? Well, why, because why, why it, do you believe that? Um, I think it more for nepotism's sake. You know, um, I know me specifically. I didn't want it. I wanted to go out on my own. Right. I definitely want. And I actually, I could ask my brother, but I know I'm. Um, I wanted to go out on my own. So, I mean, you saying that you don't believe that your father would have done the same thing for you. Um, given the district that you had gone to or patrolling precinct, I don't, mm-hmm. know, I don't know how your listeners refer to it or how they're understanding. Well, do, well uh, let's police, go with your understanding. The police station. Well, I mean, I mean the, the, I've, excuse me for cutting you off. I did. They do know that I've talked about the district I went to was a very rough district. Okay. That was a, but I always talk about, but just because it was rough didn't mean it wasn't pockets. And citizens that were just phenomenal. In Absolutely. Those. I mean, and, and, you know, and the thing is that, well, just like anything else, and I mean, and, and believe me, I'm not even sure if this is a conversation you're trying to go down, but, you know, just certain environments, man, you know, required certain attention. Definitely. And, uh, but, you know, whereas I always tell people that the district I went to where your father worked was without question, we're, we were probably the more well-rounded Definitely. police because of our exposure. Well, back before you go down, because I'm going to get there. Okay. So I want to bring the, I want to bring the audience along okay. gradually. So you understand, you listened to my podcast before, you understand what my podcast is about. It's about a fictional character called Harry Bosch sure. and the author Michael Connolly. And one of the things that's so authentic about the character he has developed was how authentic and real uh, his character is to, to what our experiences are when it comes to being a police officer. Mm-hmm. And I brought you on specifically for this podcast is because I'm in a um, portion of the book where um, the character is reflecting on the broken window syndrome. Okay, yes. And I can't really talk too much about the broken window syndrome because by this time I was a detective. Mm-hmm. And you were still in patrol back then. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. now let's get into the type of patrol district that you went to what made your patrol district so unique? So my district um, was, when I go back and I say that it was a well, that we were well-rounded police officers because our exposure was all socioeconomic groups. So mm-hmm. we, had, we had members of Congress. Yep as well as Joe the Junkie mm-hmm. um, that we encountered on a, on a regular basis. I right. mean, so these are, the, these are the folks that we encountered, and these are our exposures, our experiences. Right. And I can surely, I can assure you that members of Congress had the same issues that Joe the Junkie had and mm-hmm. vice versa. Right. Well, you give, know. We, we, well, again, without being too specific, give me a general, what you mean by Joe the Junkie and members of Congress had? Give me an example of how they both had the same situations. Well, they have family problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, res- I've responded to um, domestic issues at um, ranking officials, high-ranking officials' homes mm-hmm. where you don't hear a lot about it. You know, you, would, you wouldn't necessarily hear um, it in the news or something to that effect. Right. Because folks of influence have a means of, uh, you know, sending things a different way. Sending the, 
I'm not sure how I want to say this. You know, and I'm trying to be particular with my words. Definitely, how, definitely. How I'm saying things. Well, you mean, so I I, I can say because I'm, you know. Without necessarily, well, here's the thing. What it is that n- not naming names. Yes. Um, but, I, and, and I, you know, here's the better way for me to describe. Let me just tell you of an, uh, a run, a radio assignment Good. that I had. So I had a, um, um, a member of Congress who had a young lady mm-hmm. um, in his home. By whatever means he had the young lady there, I guess um, he had, she was with him. She spent the evening with him or something to that effect. I didn't take this young lady as being his wife or something to that effect, but the call went out as an unwanted guest. Got so it. when we get on the scene, yeah, there's this woman there, um, um, nicely dressed in a fur coat. It's daytime. And, um, you know, the gentleman meets us at the door and he says, um, yeah, I have this, I have this guest. She doesn't want to leave. And you can tell that the woman was sort of distraught that, Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe some promises were made or something to that effect, but it was obvious that, you know, by the time we got there, she was upset because I guess whatever it was she was promised or whatever it was she was told she wasn't receiving. Got it. So at this point, the, the gentleman was like, you know, um, officer, and, and, you know, he's trying to be real subtle about it, real low key about it. Like, you know, officer, can you just remove her from my house or something to that effect? And, you know, but, but, you know, the first thing I'm going to ask the woman is, ma'am, are you okay? Mm-hmm. Have you been injured in any way, shape or form? Were you held here against your will or anything like this? Because again, just because you're the individual that called doesn't necessarily make you necessarily the victim. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, the yeah. individual you're calling on actually could be the victim. Right. Um, so I got to check and make sure that she's good. But when everything was said and done, I mean, you know, she wasn't claiming any type of crime or any mm-hmm. malicious activity had been conducted against her. So at that point I said, well, ma'am, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Right. I mean, you know, I, I can't give you what this man has promised you, whatever that may have been. I don't know what it was. Right, right, right. But at that point, um, <laughs> so I'm going, I'm going to try to describe it to you. So think of like Glenn Close. Okay. 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 Uh, maybe Glenn Close. I don't know how old Glenn Close is now, but let's say Glenn Close in her mid forties or something to that effect. So imagine Glenn Close in a fur coat, uh, blonde. Okay. So a blonde version of Glenn Close. Um, the the hundred and one Dalmatians. Glenn Close. Got it. Okay. I got the picture. And and, and so we're re- asking her to leave the house and everything. So at this point, she now turns into this witch. Like at first she was sort of like upset and distraught, but then when it was time to leave, oh, that's when. So you know how we use terms like hood. Definitely. Um, she became hood. So hood means go uh, back. Uh, hood. Hood would be an expression that we would use from the project. Or um, someone from yeah, a- low socioeconomic environment. Got it. So she and, turned into that. So she turned into an individual that one would construe someone from that environment. Their behavior. And that's what, and that sort of goes back to what I was saying in reference to the upper echelon can act like the low, the, the upper socioeconomics can act just as bad as mm-hmm. one would perceive the low socioeconomics acting and then vice versa. I mean, Definitely. you know, you, you saw a lot of positive things in that environment, but in this case, I mean, you know, uh, the, the Glenn Close lookalike, <laughs> um, she, uh, she, she became hood on us and started cursing and, and got real belligerent. To the point where it's like, okay, now it's, it's getting to the point where it's gone, it's going beyond asking you to leave to, okay, we may actually have to lock you up now for disorderly because 
I'm going to say it was like maybe a Sunday or something like this, okay. early in the morning, where it's quiet, the mm-hmm. street is quiet. Mm-hmm. And so this woman, so the only thing that's going on outside is this woman screaming and Got cursing. And, and so, and you can see the embarrassment in the guy. But, you know, of course, in my mind, I'm like, well, dude, you the one that brought her in here. Man. Yeah, right, right, right. I mean, you know, and I mean, here's the thing. Follow through on whatever it is you promised, brother. Definitely. But that being said, um, she she ultimately left with no further incident because I think I may have even whispered in the ear like, ma'am, don't further embarrass yourself. Right. Or don't degrade yourself anymore to this individual. Right. You know, I'm sorry what has happened to you or whatever it was he may have promised you, but don't make yourself any worse than what's happening right now. So one of the things that um, the reason why I specifically, like I was saying earlier, I specifically wanted to interview you Mm -hmm. because during the development of my podcast, I came up um, upon upon this particular aspect that the author addressed, the, like I said, the broken window syndrome. Okay. And you and I talked about it, and you had some thoughts on it. So before I get into your thoughts on it, what is your understanding of the broken window syndrome? So my understanding of the broken window syndrome, we didn't call it the broken window right. syndrome. It, um, it went affectionately known as another name, which we actually coined from uh, uh, New York Police Department. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it basically what it was, we followed their, their lead. Right. Um, I can't quite remember who the mayor was at the time, but they had, um, implemented policies, which they called zero tolerance policies. Right. Um, up in New York. And, and it was news. It was basically, um, enforcing the laws of nuisance issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what I understood of the, what I understood of the law and, or the policies themselves was that it was to target and when I say nuisance um, offenders, it was to target individuals such as drinking in public, right. urinating in public, uh, gambling, mm-hmm. um, noise complaints, things that affect, things that that the average citizen would perceive as a nuisance. Got it. Uh, what uh, about vice related stuff like low level drug dealing? And did you so, did you see so, that also? So zero tolerance, zero tolerance was more so geared towards. Literally the nuisance things, okay. like like okay. the, like the everyday, and and I'm sure at some point in time, like in the process of you, um, clearing up a nuisance call, you may come across an individual mm-hmm. who is is a user, yeah, and they may be in possession of a drug, but it wasn't specifically targeting drug areas, Got it. Um, in, okay. Um, in a, in a sense of what we know of as a drug Got area. It. Like, we know that this, we can identify and know that on this corner they sell drugs. Right. It wasn't one of those deals, but it was, but, but here's the thing, but let me say it this way. You, you wouldn't target them per se because of the sell of drugs. What you target them for was the fact that they were drinking beer while mm-hmm. they were selling while drugs. While they were selling drugs, right. Okay. So, Going to that zero tolerance, when you were uh, in roll call, mm-hmm. your best recollection, when you were in roll call and first started rolling out um, the, the quality of life, the nuisance acts and all that kind of stuff, how, was it, how did you interpret your instructions from the command staff? <laughs> you want me to be blunt? Yeah, this? yeah, definitely. Keep it real. Keep it real. Um, Keep it real. As far as I was concerned, it was, um, you know, harass the poor people. Okay. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's, you got guys, you got w- what we call winos or what I, I grew up um, 
knowing them as winos. But guys, alcoholics who are out there on the street, and they, they basically hang out at the liquor store and they hang out in front of the liquor store and they buy their alcohol and they consume their alcohol. Right. And, you know, maybe sometimes you see them laid out on the street and whatever. But the thing is that, but it was, it's an everyday fixture. These guys are every, these guys, and when I say guys, I, I mean men and women. Mm-hmm. These are folks that you see every single day. Some of them you spoke to. Right. Some of them, you know, and I'm not going to say you, you befriended. Right. But I mean, but I, I was cool with a lot of right. these folks. I right. mean, a lot of these folks are people who assisted me out on the street with information and things like that. Right. But, but ultimately, you began having to harass these particular people who have been here every day. Right. Okay. And now today, it's a police problem. Right. Okay, but they've been here every day. You got generational winos or generational alcoholics that have been out here that it's not a poli- it's not solely a police matter. It's a social matter. Got it. But where's the other end to this? Right. You know, now, mind you, when they were talking about all this, they indicated that all these other entities were going to get involved. In- right. You know, you're going to have these, you know, you're going to have social workers out there assisting you in this and that. Well, that never happened. Definitely. And even to the day. See, because they, they claim the same things even to the day. But ultimately, it is a police department. And it's not a police department problem, but the police are looked at to resolve these issues. Well, it, so- it sounds like it was an early prelude to stop and frisk. Sure. sure. And, and uh... Well, I mean, because th- look about it. I mean, think about it is... Uh, you know, then that use your use your analogy. That wino guy, mm-hmm. he always became the focus. Mm-hmm. And then anyone around him, if he was when he got stopped, everyone around him got stopped at the same time. Sure. And then that became a culture of okay, let's let's go ahead and stop everyone and see if they're, they're violating some minor act. Yeah, but it's only happening in one community though. Okay, okay, and, and again, we, that's reason why I want you to kind of. Um, be be the voice of what I'm trying to address in this particular aspect of, the, of this section of the podcast when okay. it comes to the broken window syndrome. Mm-hmm. Because one thing that you did with me, you gave me a story. Mm-hmm. And I can, I can give analogies because I wasn't out there on the street, but you gave me a story that kind of sums up the broken window, the stop and frisk, uh, yeah. the, the way that the, the police departments around the country mishandled mishandled mm-hmm. the edict from um, City Hall because those nuisance abatement acts came out, the broken window. I mean, this, this, this is how we, as a, as a department, heard it. Hey, we got this new nuisance abatement act, which means if the windows broke, go over there and enforce that. If someone's selling minor drugs on the corner, mm-hmm. get those mm-hmm. guys off the corner. And all that then, now we have people being stopped and frisked. And people, only thing it does to me is... It isolates a certain demographic of the society. Okay. And then, yes. so the story you gave me, and I'm going to just tickle your memory, and then you tell me about it. So around the same time, you told me a time where you had gave, um, involved uh, uh, some terrier, some dog. Right, and you the, had the, the dangerous dog act. The dangerous dog act. And again, this came out the same time. Because, around the same time, so, yes. So, so my podcast listeners can understand, the city council people, Came out with all these different acts. Mm-hmm. The, 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 what would the dog act called? Dang, dangerous dog. Dangerous act. dog act. Mm-hmm. Nuisance abatement New, act. Nuisance, exactly. You know, right. all these different acts to then try to combat zero tolerance act. All these different um, 
ways to try to combat different societal issues, law enforcement-wise, opposed to social-wise. See, but, but what's interesting about you saying to combat, though that's the language they use, but the reality yes. Is, yes. is that you were doing it to appease a certain demographic. Right. So, you, so, when you, so when you use that term demographic, that a certain demographic is being targeted, but yet it's to appease a certain demographic. And, and it makes that other demographic feel that they're being safe when they really aren't safe. It gives the, the illusion, yes, sir. So going, give me the story about the, your, the, the Dangerous Dog Act and your experience with that. So um, the Dangerous Dog Act, and I can't quite re- recall the year in which it had come out. Um, Can't be the 90s. Well, 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 yes, obviously in the 90s, but, but the version of the Dangerous Dog, now I don't know what it is today. Right, I'm, right. I'm sure there's some form of it today. I can't tell you what it is. Um, but the Dangerous Dog Act during that time period um, targeted specifically um, uh, large breed animals. Uh, at the time, uh, pit bulls. Um, were classified in there like maybe a Rottweiler, maybe like Dobermans and things of that effect. But what I found interesting about the particular law was it generally targeted breeds that were indigenous. I don't know if indigenous is the proper word, but it it, it was the dog of choice mm-hmm. of uh, a particular group of folks. Well, let's, and, let's call it out. What was it? What was well, these particular I mean, uh, people of color? So, and, so, and and or, and keep going to subgroup drug dealers and 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 drug dealers right because yeah. uh, uh, no it was because uh, uh, now me in the vice world that came that was a way because they use drug dealers use particular type of dogs to guard their to drugs. guard their drugs yeah yeah no 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 doubt no doubt so no, go ahead you're, no you're correct in that go ahead so um um. You said drug dealers. I wasn't necessarily going to go drug dealers because you know you know me. I like to keep it broad. And right. I like and I like to say that you're you're targeting a particular group because unfortunately, though these drug dealers may have fallen into this racial category, the the, the bottom line is one doesn't differentiate between a drug dealer and a non-drug dealer. The fact is they have this dog. They are a part of this group. Got it. And so this law is targeting a particular group. Got it. Go. Well, so. You know, there was this sort of push to I- inclusive of like the the zero tolerance and the nuisance acts and everything like this. There was sort of like this push to make sure that, and I think the way the dog, the way the, the the elements of the law was that your dog had to be muzzled, mm-hmm. um, and at some point in time, um, um, you know, they were demanding like you having papers for it, like. Your dog had to be registered and things that affect. But what I found interesting about it was that the language of the Dangerous Dog Act, when it started giving a description of the breed, it would, it, the, the, the term terrier was in there. Well, anyone who knows anything about a pit bull, the pit bull is actually called a pit terrier. Got it. It's, it, it comes from that, that family. Okay. Well, <laughs> the, the law didn't necessarily say um, only pit terriers that it, this is designated to. What it said was inclusive, so it was inclusive of any dog that was in that family. Got it. Well, guess what else is in, inclusive of that family? You could have a poodle terrier, right? You could have uh, whatever any breed that's that's connected to the terrier. E- even a Labrador, mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form, could have even been part of that family. Something to that effect. So, it, so what was happening was. Um, where I worked, 
um, there was a dog park that was in close proximity of my, my district. Got it. And um, I remember coming into work one day and at this, so where I work, they have um, leash laws. Uh-huh. And so your dog is to be on a leash no more than three to four feet at all time. Got it. So there wasn't, you know, this whole, yeah, take your dog to the park, let it run loose. I mean, right. The law says your dog is to be on a lead. Right. Even though it was sort of customary mm-hmm. for people that once they got into this particular park. Now, mind you, the park was open to everyone. It wasn't just a dog park. Right. Okay. Um, right. The, the, the park was open to everyone. Subsequently, this particular park was um, relegated to the kids portion and then the dog portion. Right. But obviously this came after all these events. And one and one that I'm getting ready to share with you was uh, I had come into work one day and I happened to cross through this park. And there was a gentleman who had a, a large breed dog. The dog wasn't on a lead. And um, and I had um, called out to the guy, hey, sir, um, contain your dog mm-hmm. or restrain your dog. And um, his response was, oh, he doesn't bite. Well, the dog ended up taking a defensive posture. So at that point, I had, I had drawn my weapon. Well, so back up, back up. You, you jumped in too fast. Okay, I'm sorry. So what prompted you to tell the dog, I mean, tell the owner to uh, put his dog on a leash or, or lead, uh, using your terminology? A, a, a lead. On a well, lead. Because well, cause you said you were coming in, and I, I guess I was, the dog came. The I, was dog? Com- I was coming in, mm-hmm. and his dog was running free, freely. But like I said, it's a large breed dog. Right. All I see is a large breed dog. I don't see, oh, it's a friendly dog, oh, it's a mean dog or whatever. I just see a large breed dog. My man, contain your dog so I don't have any issues with it because I can see the dog sort of take like, and I'm going to say defensive because in my path, I got to pass by the owner. Got it. Okay. That's, I, why, that's why I want to get you. Oh, right. okay. Okay. okay you, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. So, so I have to walk past the owner. I don't know how this dog is going to react with me coming in close proximity of his dog. So I say to him, well, and obviously I can identify who the owner was, mm-hmm. you know, because the, like I said, the dog's in the area of him, but mm-hmm. the dog is not on the lead. So therefore, he, he doesn't have immediate restraint ability of the dog right. or, or to contain his dog. Um, so when I call out to him and I said, hey, sir, I need you to contain your dog. And his response to me was, um, well, he, he doesn't bite. <laughs> so I'm like. I draw my weapon and I said, sir, restrain your dog or I'm going to kill it. Right. And, that, and that's just the bottom. That's just the that's just the bottom line to it, because I'm not going to I'm not going to I'm not going to risk, especially when I saw the dog take a defensive posture. Right. No, let's, OK, let's break it down further. When Go you ahead. say the dog. So you were on your way into work. Mm-hmm. You were. You, and I'm crossing through the park. You're crossing through the park. Mm hmm. Because it's right, because I know where you work, it, it, the park is right so, in so, front of the building. Yeah, so literally, I'm parked on the other side of the park. My station is across. In between. The, yeah. So, so, well, the park is in between where, where I was park, parked. Right. And, and, the, and the front door. And the front door, right. So when you, as you were crossing through, you were getting close to the owner. You saw the dog take a, I'm just going to say aggressive. Aggressive okay. or def- a, defensive. A, 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 aggressive. Uh, the, 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 I attracted the dog's attention. Got it. So when you, okay. when you, then you ask the owner to restrain the dog. Right. And the owner then tells you, hey, he doesn't bite. And his response was, uh, no, nah, he, his response was like, sort of almost like dismissive. Like, oh, no, nah, he, he's okay. He, you know, he, he doesn't bite. Right. 
So at that point, and, and I think I'm carrying my uniforms or something like this. So one, if one would have taken the time to even look at me, you could see, okay, this guy is, is probably the police. Well, well, come on, let's, 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 let's break it down. The, you, you work there, cops are around there all the time. Our, our uniforms at that time was very distinctive. You know, right. we, you know, it was very distinctive. It wasn't right. like you were plain clothes like me. Right. You were definitely law enforcement. So, well, again, because I'm on my way into work, so I'm not wearing my uniform. Right. Um, I'm in my regular clothes. But the bottom line is this. When I say to you, I'm, when, when I say to you, well, my actions are I'm drawing my weapon out of my holster. Mm-hmm. And I say to you, restrain the dog or I'm going to kill it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't know how much more you need to that. I mean, you know, uh, again, well, I'm a police officer. I'm not a police officer. I am a man that has a gun in his hand. Got it. Okay, so so you take you make you make your decision on that one. So by by this time the dog still has as a, as a defensive posture, right? And then so what happened after that? So when I make the comment that I make, I guess the guy looks at me and is like, "Oh wow!" And so you, well not he he didn't say "Oh wow," but you know his reaction is like, "Oh, you know," like I guess he was startled. He grabs his dog, he restrains his dog. I walk by and he says, "Well, you don't," you know. He makes some comment like, "Well, you don't have control of this park or anything like this." You know, this is not even your jurisdiction. <laughs> and so his and so what what his reasoning behind that was in the parks park territories or federal lands are regulated by United States park police. Right. But what he failed to realize was that there there's something that's called concurrent jurisdiction mm-hmm. where if a law is being violated whether it's on federal jurisdiction or on or city mm-hmm. jurisdiction you know, I as a city police officer still have jurisdiction. I mean, I, I still have the authority to go in enforce and law. enforce laws. Got it. So <laughs> when I made it inside, you know, I changed, you know, changed, got ready for my duty and everything like this. Well, upon coming back to my duty before I actually took my car to put it in service, I went out with my ticket book and everybody that was in the park with their dogs running loose, um, I gave tickets to. Okay. <laughs> for failing to have the dogs on the lead. It's a violation of the city code. And, um, and, and I probably wrote somewhere in the neighborhood of like maybe 12 or 14 tickets or something to that effect. And, and, and I'm not saying that I wrote 12 or 14 that particular day, but it was like maybe a two or three day period in which every day that I came out there, everybody that dog was running loose, I just wrote them a ticket. Right. Well, what ended up happening was to, to finalize the story that you mm-hmm. and I had, had discussed. Right. Um, I had come in the roll call one day and it was this long line of people out in front of my station. And, uh, when I, when I came into the station and, uh, you know, I, I think I may have asked the desk sergeant or something like this, like, Hey, you know, like Sarge, what's going on out there? And he's like, yeah, man, they, they here making complaints. <laughs> you know, I said, uh, okay. So I go to roll call and I'm sitting in roll call and, uh, my captain walks in. And my captain, he, you know, he was a real laid-back, nonchalant dude, uh, real, real cool captain. And, um, you know, he says, uh, hey, Ted, um, you see all those people outside? And I said, yes, sir. And he says, well, they're here for you. They're here about you. And I said, oh, I mean, you know, what did I do, captain? He's like, <laughs> he says, well, apparently you wrote them all tickets. And I said, oh, yes, sir. And uh, he says, uh, now, mind you, like I said, I'm in roll call. So he's not, he's addressing me directly, but it's in front of all my peers. Right. And um, so 
what he said to me was, well, Ted, um, can you please stop writing these people tickets? Right. And my response to him was, well, Captain, when you tell the officers to stop writing my people tickets mm-hmm. for, for the, the law that's in place, so we're going back to the dangerous dog. Right. When you tell your officers to stop writing my people tickets for their dogs who are in compliance, dogs that do have muzzles on their, on their mouths, that, that um, guys who are walking their dogs with three or four foot leads, mm-hmm. they are in compliance. Mm-hmm. When you stop writing my folks' tickets, who you're targeting, I'll stop writing your folks' tickets. But, so when you say my folks and your folks, so I'm assuming the, the captain was one de- demographic? And he got, he got, he, he, he got, he's, he's not, he's not of my demographic. And he was upset that, um, not upset, but he, but you, you, you were telling him, Hey, look, uh, people under your command are, are not, specifically targeting people who look like me, right. Who are abiding by the law. Right. But yet they're still giving them tickets They're under the zero tolerance thing. They're, they're sort of humming them. So the zero tolerance and the dangerous dog sort of coincide with one another. But it was another tool for the police to, and, I'm, and, and honestly, I'm just going to say to harass mm-hmm. a particular group of people. Um, and again, myself, I, yes, I'm a law enforcement officer, but I'm a realist. Got it. I mean, I understand. You tell me what the law is, and to the best of my ability, I will try to stay within the confines of the law. But when an individual is staying within the confines of the law and he's still being harassed, by the individuals who are sworn to protect and enforce that law, I take issue with that right. as a police officer. Right. So that being said, here it is. Every single day we come into work, and over here in this park that's directly across from me, you see a certain demographic that's allowed to allow their terriers mm-hmm. to run freely right. through the park in clear violation of a law that's not being enforced. Right. But yet. You tell an individual who, should, who happens to have a particular breed that his dog needs to be muzzled and it needs to have a certain type of lead or whatever, and that individual has a dog um, in full compliance, but yet you're still stopping him. Now, you may not necessarily be giving him a citation, but you're stopping him mm-hmm. and you're challenging him about his dog because right. you're using that as a, a, a means. A pretext. And again, and I'm not going to get into, you know, violations of civil rights or anything like this, but truth be told, one demographic doesn't have to, they don't, they're not subjected to the same treatment mm-hmm. that the demographic I belong to right. is treated. So now let's fast forward to 2019. Looking back on that experience, and I know you have tons of other ones. Mm-hmm. Do you, can you put, connect the dots? to how certain demographics feel towards the police. If you connect incidences like, you know, the, the Dangerous Dog Act. Okay, let's, let's be blunt here. Go ahead. If you're talking about people of color mm-hmm. and how they feel about white police officers, without question, I can connect the dots. Right. Is that what we're referring to? Correct, we are. Okay. Yeah, yes. So to answer your question, yes. And see, that's one of the things I like about this particular author because he does connect the dots. Okay. You know, by putting it in there, like um, earlier, um, the last book um, I, I did a podcast on, he reflected on when he was in court and the amount of brown and black people 
that were in court. Okay. Now, he's in a predominantly Caucasian um, a city. Mm-hmm. But majority of the people in court were brown and black people. Okay. And I, I, I thought, you know, he wrote his book back in the 93. And that's, not, that's, that's definitely not politically correct to say something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and his courage to put it out there like that. Okay. I hope made, gave, gave me more respect of him. Because he could have whitewashed it if he wanted to. Sure. And, and um, again, same here. For him to point out this, I mean, because if you look, look at the, um, I'm looking at the context he put the, the, you know, the broken window syndrome mm-hmm. in the story, it really doesn't take away, it really doesn't add to the overall story. You know, to, you know why I make this particular book okay. really good. It's like a subsection of a subsection of a subsection about this particular um, guy whose had ambition was to be a politician. Okay. And, you know, one of the things he, was, he, he, he championed was zero tolerance, the broken window syndrome, tough on crime type of thing. And for, for Michael Connolly to then give that voice, that broken window voice, mm. to me, it was screaming back then. You know, he, he wrote this particular book. It's called The Last Coyote back in 1995. Okay. And for him to give that broken window syndrome, and we as being part of it back when it was being instituted and seeing how now it, it, it panned out, we can see, wow, the strife that minority communities have. Mm-hmm. Some of the roots come back then. I mean, and it, was, it was probably, it was way before then, but at least in our tenure, we can see some, a lot of the seeds that were being planted and now look as being, was, was, was blossomed. This, now I wouldn't call it hatred, but this animosity. They're just like you said, there's, oh, wait a I'm in 100% compliance. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's this dude walking down the street with his dog, and the law says to have these things done. And I have these things done, but I'm still being stopped. So, but let me, so I didn't quite finish the story oh, sorry, go ahead. With, yeah. with the dangerous dog. Go. Was, so after this encounter with my captain and I in roll call, um, and so to go to your statement of I'm 100% in compliance and you're still harassing me, well, once I began doing what I was doing and I made the statement that I made to the captain, and I'm not saying that my statement was that profound, that it caused this effect, but because I used the law that they gave me mm-hmm. and, and, and applied it to the animals in question, i.e. the people who were complaining against me, that Dangerous Dog Act was rescinded <laughs> after about a month. <laughs> so it was only out there for about a month. Right. But when they realize, oh, wait a minute, hold on. It's not affecting, it's not only affecting my preferred demographic. Mm-hmm. Okay, nah, 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 it's, it's affecting the wrong people. We, we won't have to pull this one back. Right. What, whatever the motivation was behind it, I don't know what the motivation was. Because here's the thing, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a creator of laws. Right. As a police officer, I'm an enforcer right. of the laws. But I'm a true believer in fairness okay. and, and, treating, and treating people correctly. So now I'm glad you said it because that was going to be my next question. Because somebody would listen to this podcast mm-hmm. and your interview and say, well, you, you don't like certain demographics. Oh, he has hatred towards or animus towards Not at all. It, uh, certain demographics. Not and at all. So, so I cut you off. You were about to say you look at the law colorblind. That's basically you want to, you're looking at you, when you enforce the law, the first thing is not the, the race, nationality, is did this particular person break the law and you're going to enforce it? Um, right is right and wrong is wrong. Got it. 
Now, I'll be the first one to tell you, just because there's a law against something doesn't necessarily mean that everybody should be arrested or, or, or every law should be applied to every individual. Exactly. The, I agree with that. Yeah. You, you know, there, there, are, there are folks, because of their socioeconomic status, are in certain situations where they may break the law, but should we actually penalize that person for the law they broke? And I'll give you an example. Okay. <clears throat> I had an individual who stole a, uh, one of those rotisserie chickens from a grocery store. Right. Okay. And when I caught up with him, you know, and you can see in, in, in probably the most humble manner possible, the guy said, officer, I was just hungry. Got it. How can I lock up a man? Now, he shoplift. Mm-hmm. He did, in fact, shoplift. Right. Shoplifting is, in fact, a crime. Right. But how can I? in all good consciousness, lock up this man because he's hungry. Right. So what did I do? So all parties are square. I reached in my pocket Mm -hmm. and I paid for that man's chicken. Right. Okay. I'm not asking him for anything. I don't want anything from him. Now the store manager's upset and everything. Oh my goodness, you're not going to lock him up. Right. My man, do you have your money for the item in question? Yes. Then go on. Right. But see, but again, certain folks want certain things done to certain peoples. When the reality is, man, is where's the humanity here? To bring the conversation full circle is this broken window. Yes. Because what's happening is society is not giving officers the discretion to... Now, I I actually understand the broken window policy, uh, zero, the broken window syndrome. I get it. Okay. And see, I know how to work within the system. Because I, you know, what I would know, what I would do is I would say, hey, Officer Anderson, this beat right here, I notice there's a lot of, because see, I look at things through the prism of narcotics. I'm just, that was my forte. Absolutely. So if you were there, I'd say, hey, this particular house, because I know behind the scenes is that a lot of people use um, abandoned houses for illicit activities, mm-hmm. via prostitution, shooting gallery, or drug distribution, or, or any vice out there. So I would come to you and say, hey, Officer Anderson, where on the, where on the um, well, first I would do a two, two banger. One is on your beat, who are you getting the most heat from? Who, what, 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 what section of the city is giving you the most trouble? Because we believe in something called beat integrity. Yes. And you, you beat integrity for my podcast listeners is that you maintain integrity about your scout car beat. If something happened in your beat, you knew about it. You knew the people on your beat. You knew who your problems were. You knew Mrs. Jones. Little lady, she got a check at 12 o'clock noon and she was walking down the street to get the, the check cashed, you know, so, so she wouldn't get robbed. You know, you knew everything about your beat. Right. There was integrity. Right. So for beat integrity, you want to make sure that your citizens are happy. And if you notice this one particular house where the window was broken and on your level as a patrol officer, you can only do so much. But I would come in and say, hey, that house that's caused you problems. Give me some information about that. Who do you see there all the time? Mm-hmm. And then we will coordinate together. I would then use the law to combat that problem. But I would, I would do it in a manner where, you know, because some of my best, so, you know, again, this is old school. Again, I'm, I'm getting too far in the weeds, but the new school and the old school drug dealers are totally different. 
Oh, absolutely. The old school drug dealers kept things in house, kept things quiet, Correct. kept things you know behind the doors. These new generation guys, these uh, I wouldn't call them millennials, but these new guys, they they don't call them millennials. They were they it's out, their generation. They were out of control. Yeah, and they did things that caused attention. Old time drug dealers did things so the cops didn't come to them. You know, they right. kept things quiet. Right. You know, they, they, you know, they handled things quietly. Well, in the game, in the game, and so, so going to your field, because, you know, the particular area that I had worked, um, going to your particular field, a lot of times when you wanted certain control, the big, the big time drug dealers were the guys you went to to get their people under control. Right. Yo, man, homicides are getting out of control. So here's the deal. Either you get your people in check or I'm going to come down on you right. on a regular basis. And so the big boys, they don't want that type of attention. Right. So what do they do? They put their people in check. But let me bring it back, let me bring it back, Phil, to the, uh, the broken window, because there was something that you had said that, um, that struck a chord with me, you know, as far as uh, you, you had mentioned something about, like, beat integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you were going somewhere with it when you were talking about, like, pooling resources. Definitely. And, but here was the thing about it. The concept of it, yes, it's a nice concept. It's a beautiful concept if all entities are involved. Right. But what happened was only the police were doing what they were supposed to be doing. The other entities, as the social workers, um, the Department of Public Works. Courts. Courts. They weren't, do- they weren't upholding their end of it. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, the unfortunate part is, man, it's, it's just like what's happening today. You blame everything on the police. But folks need to realize that the police hands, we're, we're, we're limited. Right. We take the bad guy off the street, and that's it. Right. So you tell us what the law is. You tell us what the regulations are. We abide by it. We do what we're supposed to do. But what ends up happening is that the other entities that are involved in, the, in this, dynamic, this, this dynamic relationship, right. they were falling short. So, does, so the zero tolerance, yes. Though the concept was a sound concept, mm-hmm. the other entities weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And see, but no one else is held accountable but the police. Right. We're the only ones that everyone criticizes. Why? Because we're on the front line. Right. We're the ones that the community sees. We're the, we're the ones that the community hears about. Right. But no one hears about the public works guy that after we cleaned up a particular, in right. front of a particular establishment, the public works guy that now has to come and board it up or whatever. Because some red tape says, well, no, we don't, we don't have material or whatever. Right, right. Or it's a snow day. So, uh, you know, whatever the reasoning is. Or going with your wino guy, we lock him up, but then social service don't get him into a, re- a Don't rehab. get him into a program, a program or something to that effect. So, you know, the, 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 the <laughs> again, folks, <laughs> and, and I'm not a politician in no way, shape, or form, nor am I advocating any particular type of politicians. These are the things that you want to hear mm-hmm. from your respected representatives when they're out there running their mouth and bumping their gums about what they're going to do for your community. Right. Because it's one thing to have a plan, but ask them, how are you going to facilitate this plan? Or does it fall on the police department? Well, you know, Ted, you know, listening to you, you know, I'm taking the I'm a, I'm taking a other side to it. You sound like a bleeding hot liberal. You know, you sound like a... You know, that you should lock anybody up type of liberal guy. You know, you uh, everyone should go free and, 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 you know, 
be be free and go. I mean, you, you, I mean, are, well, are you know, you? I, I was a fan of Woodstock, so I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm being sarcastic no, because no, I know no, no, you. No, no, I know, and and you know, and, and the, the funny part is, is that if you were to ask me what a liberal was, I can't even tell you what a liberal is. Okay. I have no idea what a liberal. I can tell you that I'm a police officer. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that I'm a human being, right? Who has the job of being a police officer? I can tell you that I have respect for my fellow man. And so the unfortunate part is now we have to qualify those statements though. When I say to you, I have respect for my fellow man, that's exactly what I mean. Mm-hmm. There, you don't have to read into it or anything like this. But unfortunately, we live in a world today where, oh, well, you're a police officer of color, so you only care about those particular people or you're anti against someone else who's not like you. And that's far from the truth. So... I'm ending the pod, uh, interview with, um, with um, T, uh, T, Ted, and I want to thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. This is not the first, not the last time I'm going to uh, pull upon your experience because okay, what I like to do is give um, the podcast listeners different views. Mm-hmm. And actually, a couple of people have asked for different views than mine. Okay. And again, uh, law enforcement, we're not monolithic, you know, mm-hmm. is, you know, is, that's because we like we represent society and mm-hmm. we all have different views, but some things are core and um, in all of us. Okay. And one of the things I, I really appreciate you saying is that you you uh, you look out for your fellow man, your yeah. human. Yeah. And and you try to take the situation into account and to apply the law, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's one of the things that I really appreciate our generation of law enforcement. Can I throw this last part in there? Sure, sure, sure. Is, and I, and I, I don't know, man, maybe, maybe this is my mantra. Um, and, and, I'm, and I probably wasn't able to articulate it in the beginning of my career, but I damn sure was able to articulate it at the, the end of my career. Mm-hmm. And my responsibility in life, man, is to be the strength and the defender of those who are weak and innocent right. and can't defend themselves. Right. And that's anybody. Right. See, and again, uh, and it's sad that I have to qualify it by emphasizing anybody or any particular, because when I speak, man, I'm only speaking about humans. I'm not, right. you know, this whole, we get caught up in where you only care about this or you represent this or you a sellout or whatever, whatever, man. Right, right, right. You know, Slim, I'm me. Right. I don't have to apologize for being me. Right. The unfortunate unfortunate part is that today's law enforcement, they're learning how to be book police Mm -hmm. and not how to be police. Right. Well, you know, it's funny. Last podcast, and it sounds corny because I'm a comic book guy, is, you know, what was all, with great, with great response, with great, Power, power come great responsibility right and that's well no, that's, that's true that, that's, that's true you know, I mean, no no that's you know i mean look my man stan lee ain't just say that he, that wasn't just a catchy phrase that right. he pulled out man right i mean i truly believe that when he said it he truly believed what he was saying definitely definitely you know well well you know when i first came on uh my my street sergeant said phil americans care about three things uh no two things life and liberty and the city has endowed, empowered you to take both. Right. Feel that. Absolutely. Own that. 
Absolutely. Now go the fuck out here and right. do your job. Right. You know. Right. right. And um, right. that was like, wow. Okay. <laughs> and but that was, but that was the beauty, man. We, you know, when we were young, when we were young pups on the department, we had teachers. Definitely. We had mentors. True, we had true leaders. Yes. Well, you know, wow. I, this was spoken twenty. This is one thing I love about you because this interview, I was planning on making it half an hour, and now we're going into. Um, uh, 65 minutes Yeah so. I know I was like I'm sitting there thinking Like okay what the hell you, you know you gotta watch The questions you ask me man You know You know me man I get diarrhea in the mouth And that gets us to this episode's Everyone Counts or No One Counts. And my Everyone Counts or No One Counts person for chapters 13 through 16 of The Last Coyote is Chief Irving. Now, I'm not getting soft on Chief Irving, guys. I'm not. You know, he's still the junkyard dog. But I picked Chief Irving for believing in Harry or at least giving Harry an opportunity to make his way back. As Chief Irving said to Harry, I'm going to handle this a little bit differently than we normally would handle it, which means, hey, I believe in you and I'm giving you an opportunity so you can get back in the game. Again, the easy thing for Chief Irving to do, again, he has Harry in the crosshairs. The easy thing for him to do is say, you know what, you threw your supervisor through the window. We have uh, physical evidence. We got witnesses there. There's no excuse for that. We're going to bring you up on rights and take your gun and badge and you're out of here. That would be the easy thing to do. But as we know, the junkyard dog doesn't do things easy. And sometimes doing the right thing is hard. And I right now appreciate Chief Irving for doing the hard thing. So my everyone counts or no one counts person for chapter 13 through 16 of The Last Coyote is Chief Irving. chapters 13 through 16 review of The Last Coyote. But I know, I know this was an extremely long podcast and thanks for hanging in there with me on this one. I say that all the time, but really, really, really thank you for hanging in there. I normally try to put out two podcasts a month, but this particular aspect of what Michael Connelly talked about, the broken window theory or syndrome or whatever we call it, or no tolerance as uh, Officer Anderson said, was so important that I tried to, you know, mix it up, put it into two podcasts, but it just didn't seem to flow right. 
And so that's why was, this podcast was so long this time. Again, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your understanding. And I promise the next podcast won't be as long and I'll get back to my twice a month. But first, I want to say again, thank you to um, Officer Anderson. Thank you for giving your insight. And as we said, this won't be his last time on the podcast. And they, hey, as I said, give me your feedback, good, bad, or indifference on Officer Anderson. You know, what did you like about what he said? What did you not like what he said? You know, give me some feedback so I can give to him. Because by all means, do we think that we are the end all to be all when it comes to law enforcement and the law enforcement world? And it goes without saying, please continue to follow us on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And when you're there, please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. And also leave your comments there or email me or however you want to get me, get information to me, because those comments are valuable and I appreciate your feedback. And to keep driving the point home, the podcast is growing by leaps and bounds. And I know it's because of you sharing your experience with the podcast with your friends and family. So continue to do that. Also, don't forget to join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content. There you will find a different experience concerning Michael Conley and Harry Bosch. Um, I have my tally sheets there. I'm doing a running timeline there. I definitely keep a blog going there. So again, you will find much more content on their website. So please avail yourself to it. So next up on the Thin Blue Line, we will continue our deep dive into The Last Coyote, chapter 17 through 20. I'm Phil Parker, and I'm 10-7 for the remainder. Bye.